This episode of Kid Lit These Days is sponsored by TBR, Book Riot's subscription service, offering reading recommendations personalized to your reading life. Want great new Kid Lit books to read but are overwhelmed by all the publishing buzz? Let us help. Tell TBR about your reading likes and dislikes and what you're looking for and sit back while your bibliologist handpicks recommendations just for you. TBR offers plans to receive hardcover books in the mail or recommendations by email, so there's an option for every budget. TBR is produced in partnership with Print, a bookstore in Portland, Maine, so you can treat your shelf and support an indie too. And TBR is also available as a gift. Visit mytbr.co to sign up today. That's mytbr.co. Hello, and welcome to episode 34 of Kid Lit These Days, a Book Riot podcast. At Kid Lit These Days, we are your Kid Lit connoisseurs, pairing the best of children's literature with what's going on in the world today. I'm Nicole Young, alongside Matthew Winner, and we are here to have conversations that create opportunities for parents, grandparents, teachers, librarians, and all who love children's books to engage in the world through literature in a deeper and broader way. We are recording on July 19th, 2020, and we're focusing on today's topic, which is own voices. Hi, Matthew. Hi, Nicole. <laughs> that was wonderful. Oh, we said hi gosh. at the same time. I love it so much. <laughs> I have looked forward to talking to you all, I would say all week long, but it's really been two weeks. Yay. And that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Yes. I miss you when we're not. And then when we get on, I'm like, yes, Matthew, let's talk. <laughs> <laughs> let's catch up in the podcast before the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait, Nicole, I have a surprise for you that I did not tell you about during our chat before the chat. And that is that we... Uh, got a really awesome review on iTunes, and I wanted to read it to you. Yes, is that okay? I would love that. Yes, please. <laughs> this is, we have not been pushing reviews. It used to be that um, Karina and I used to read out some of the reviews, and then we just stopped doing that because we got caught up in, in other stuff. And then I was like, I should check the reviews. And we have one about you and me. And I was like, I'm totally sharing that. So this is from... Um, it, the, the name of the review is Always Timely, Always Amazing, and it's by Same Love. Thank you, Same Love. Thank you, Same it Love. It goes, <laughs> as a teacher who believes the children's literature is the best and most highly underrated art forms out there, I find so much light and joy in listening to this podcast. They discuss relevant and needed topics and emphasize the importance of exposure and discussion of these topics with our children. When listening, I am constantly looking up the the books they discuss and add them to my online shopping cart. I often go back into the show notes later to make recommendations to others. I have to admit that Nicole and Matthew feel like friends or colleagues of mine with their playful voices and beautiful laughs. Keep doing what you are doing. It matters. Thank you, oh same my love. Gosh. Thank you, same love. That's so sweet. My little, you just see my face. It's so sweet. Oh my god! Isn't that overwhelming and adorable? It is incredibly oh, like, overwhelming. Oh, I, I, I love that. Thank you so much for writing it, same love, and thank you for sharing it, Matthew. Someone asked me. Uh, one of my friends was like, "Do you ever look at the like notes or anything?" I was like, "No, I don't." <laughs> <laughs> and this is beautiful. Thank you. You know, in, in the algorithm of how all things now have algorithms that make people see them, it's a wonderful thing for folks to leave reviews because it does end up like bringing Kidlet these days up in, in recommendations. So um, listeners, I'm not in any way trying to pressure you to write <laughs> any thoughts at all about Kidlet these days. You can go on to iTunes and, and give whatever stars you want with whatever thoughts you want. But um, by communicating over that platform, it does help other people discover the show. And, and, and that's a really super awesome thing. I love so, that. So thank you, Same Love, for doing that. I also just agree with the sentiment that like kids' literature is the most underrated art form. I, I highly agree. I just feel like it is such a beautiful medium for messages. And, and I think that's why this podcast is possible, because there's just so many... There's like a depth of, of messaging in children's literature um, that we don't talk about enough. And I agree, same love. And it's the first chance children ever get to be up close with professional art mm -hmm. and stories that are written to teach us rhythmic language and how how words can flow and how 
uh, the way you form sentence structures can appeal. Like books do that. It's a great thing. Books are, it turns out books are a great thing, Nicole. Books are awesome. <laughs> I am making my stance right now official. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All the giggles. Let me get into our next sponsor before we get into own voices, because I really, I really can't wait to talk about this with you. So this episode is sponsored by Libro FM. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local independent bookstore at the same price as Audible for a monthly membership. You can pick from more than 150,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and some of the hottest new audiobook releases, like Such a Fun Age by Kylie Reed, Untamed by Glennon Doyle, Wow, No Thank You by Samantha Irby, and The Glass Hotel by Emily St. John Mandel. Listeners of the Kidlet These Days podcast can get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of one month. So go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, use code B-R-3 to get two months of audiobooks for the price of one. And let me tell you, Nicole, I use Libro all the time. Um, I use it for all of my kidlit stuff. Uh, they have <laughs> the books that we're going to be talking about yeah. in our book recommendation today are books that I got through through Libro as well. And uh, um, it does help to know that the the proceeds are going to keep those indie bookstores there. I've heard from a number of indie bookstore friends as well that, that own or work at indie bookstores saying that it really does help. They really do uh, like getting those little kickbacks from from places like bookshop.org and from Libro. So so it's working. It's good. Keep awesome. it going. <laughs> I love it. Um, I think I tweeted you this week, Matthew, because I was I was having some library love moment because, yes, any oh. bookstores, but also libraries. <laughs> um, and you. I have been on, like, this audiobook kick ever since we started this podcast together. And I have been doing all of these audiobooks. And there was a book that I wanted that the library didn't have in its uh, in its audiobook thing, and I just clicked the recommend, and literally the next day, the the library was like, "We have it for you. Do you want this audiobook?" And I was like, Whoa. "Oh my god, I love, I love libraries. I just I appreciate you all. I mean, just the fact that I could get something for free, it was amazing." Anyways, yeah. I um, I am deeply books are awesome again. Uh, underscoring books are awesome, and the people who are getting us books with care and curating books for us both at the like library and at the local indies is just amazing it's a oh, way yeah. to feel cared for and like cared for in a time um like this is like having this attention to detail and these people who are like hey we want to make sure that you've got great books at your disposal it's just it's wonderful we could go on and on but arguably and this is not i am not the first person to say this this is from listening to many many podcasts where um folks have talked about this but arguably uh, the American public library system is is our greatest institution, our greatest thing as America that we have created is this amazing access to all for knowledge and for resources. And as you said, this this responsiveness as well. You want this? I'm sure other people will want it too. Let's make sure we get it right away. It's amazing. So, uh, it's amazing. So own voices, own voices. Here we go. Own voices. Nicole, I know that own voices, it's a hashtag. I've seen it on book descriptions from publicists. I hear it talked about at conferences. I personally have strong feelings about and around own voices. I wanted to know, are you aware of the origin of hashtag own voices? No, I was really excited to see this and I want to hear about it. So tell me, please. Cool. All right. So did a little bit of research. Um, this is from Twitter. Yay. Where the birth of many hashtags come yes. um, b- before like millennials started just using it as a turn of phrase. Um, uh, Corinne Doivis, who is at Corinne Doivis, uh, D-U-Y-V-I-S, uh, September 6, 2015, tweeted this. Glad important discussions are being had. Would love to be able to walk away with book recommendations. How about a hashtag? And her next tweet or their next tweet said, hashtag own voices to recommend Kidlit about diverse characters written by authors from that same diverse group. So that's really what we're talking about here when we're talking about own voices. We're, ta- we're using it to denote a story with an element to the, the character or the character's identity or experience in the book that is something shared uh, with that author, or in in some cases too, with the illustrator. 
I love that. And I think I've been thinking about this topic this week. And I, so John Lewis, Representative John Lewis passed away um, this week and lots of beautiful, he was a civil rights leader. He walked the Edmund Pettus Bridge, all of these things. But there was a lot of just like videos circulating around him. And one of Mm -hmm. the ones was, he was talking about how when he was a teenager um, in 1956, and him and his uh, friends and, and uh, cousins had tried to get library cards, but they were told that the library was for white people only and that they couldn't access the library, right? So we were just having this conversation about how the beauty of libraries, but for a very long time, a lot of people did not have ha- access to them. And similarly, like if the libraries were segregated in this way, oftentimes like books and particularly kids' literature, right, has been segregated and there haven't been a lot of spaces for own voices writers to come in. Right. So like if you're a trans writer, if you are a black writer, if you're a black trans writer, if you're an Asian American woman writer, like there has just not been space for you in the industry. And so I think there is um, an important conversation around like us highlighting these voices, but also it's about what kids see. Right. So like John Lewis going into that thing, you know, he wasn't going to see in the library, see books that represented him and his experience, his lived experience. Um, and so it's exciting that we're living in a time where more and more own voices, children's books exist. But I think the importance of this hashtag is around elevating stories that have not, people haven't been able to see themselves when they read books, right? Um, and it's so exciting that we're living in a time where more and more people can. Um, yeah. It also means as the hashtag becomes more and more prevalent, more and more used, that it becomes interpreted in different ways and also has become a bit um i don't know if the word here is divisive Mm. it has it has i've been at writing conferences where authors have asked where specifically white authors have asked but if we're being told that we're supposed to have diverse books and that we need diverse books and diverse books matter but yet you're telling me i'm white i can only write white characters then how is that diversity going to happen there's a lot of problems with statements like that of yeah. course um the uh well i think the the term uh white rage is often used to describe that that reaction of uh of of a white person feeling like um this isn't fair because i just want to write down like in my naggy voice um but um in all seriousness the the question of who can write what stories and who should write what stories is something that is being discussed a lot um and also i was mentioning to you before recording that I've been seeing that hashtag being overused a lot. And in, mm. in, in cases of publicists, it's being used as a means of trying to hook reviewers on centering that book. And in some cases, it's being, in some cases, it's being misused. And so we want to make sure that we spend time unpacking that so that the folks listening, that all of you listening can have a better sense of how to identify if a book is own voices, um, the the value of it being own voices, and 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 when to read critically. You should always be reading critically, but when to read more critically uh, if things feel like they're off. To read more critically and think, is this really a book that is best representing the the characters in it, the identities in it? Um, is this a book that should be on my shelf? Mm-hmm. And you and I sort talked of, about, oh, go ahead. No, I was just to say, I'm sort of stumbling through this and I think that's okay. But, um, but uh, that, that's why I'm excited about engaging in this with you, Nicole, because it is complicated and that's okay too. Yeah. And I think you and I talked about this, the start of this conversation was around books, especially picture books, right? There are more and more of them that feature a drawn protagonist of color right so a little black girl will be in a book about a garden or a little you know like there are these instances where more and more of the imagery is a protagonist of color but oftentimes the person who is drawing them or the person who has written that story is not a person of color right and how that is an instance where it's like yes there is more representation technically of black children in 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 children's literature and picture books right but we have to ask ourselves 
is that the best, is is that white author and that white illustrator, are they the best per- people to bring that story forward, right? Like I think about, so Matthew Cherry and Vashti Harrison's book, we've talked about Hair Love Hair a love, ton. Yeah. Um, and I, I love that book because it is clear to me, both in the writing and in the illustration, that they are made by Black people, right? And like even how Vashti describes how she wanted to draw the father in there, you know, she wanted a father with, with dreadlocks. She wanted a, a father, a black father with tattoos. Right. And, and Matthew was having this conversation about hair, which is a central part of black communities. And especially it's a, it's a piece of like bonding. Right. And so, yes, could that have been written in some version or some form by maybe a white author or white, I don't know, maybe, but like there is a, an added value to the fact that these are the lived experiences of both of the people, both the, the author and the illustrator in creating this thing. And then it lends an authenticity and a realness to it. And it's why I think it has, has resonated with so many people who are not just Black people. I mean, you've shared before how so many of your students were touched by the book, both the book and the movie version of this. Um, and I think Correct. it's in part because that they were able to bring another layer to the story making that wouldn't have existed if they were white storytellers. So I think that, I think that, I mean, it is complicated. I think the one thing I come back to a lot and, and point out to folks just so we can have reference for understanding. And for those listening that have not seen these before, the two um, resources I would point out first are, um, the resource from Lee and Lowe on the diversity gap in children's books. Mm-hmm. The information is from it's a 24-year period when they lasted this infographic. It was 1994 to 2017 in tracking that trend um, of representation of people of color and Native people in children's books. And um, we, as of the time of making this infographic, it notes that 37% of the U.S. population are people of color, but that 13% of children's books in the past 24 years contain multicultural content. And specifically what I think is so important and of note in this infographic is that it shows, you know, a a line of 24 bars, 24 years, um, the percentage of books that were written by people of color or written about people of color by, by people that are not, um, so you're seeing, you know, in like 1980 or 1994, you're seeing that 90% of the books that had people of color or native people in them, 90% were written by white people. Mm-hmm. Um, but in 2017, we're not even that much better. You're at 31% are by uh, 31% of the books that have representation of people of color or native people are actually written by them, um, which still leaves 69% that's not. So a a strong majority that's not. Um, And being able to ask yourself, what does this mean? And am I okay with that? Mm -hmm. I think is an important thing. I think that there is definitely value in seeing yourself in a book, in seeing uh, your skin tone and seeing your experience. But I think there's a much deeper and authentic connection to, to, to feeling like you're seeing a truth on paper, not just a, 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 you know, a depiction. Yeah. I think about, that makes me think about Ezra Jack Keats, um, whose work was huge in my own childhood, right? Like those were mm-hmm. the, for a long time, the only books with black drawn protagonists that my mother could find for me. Um, and so I grew up on all of the Ezra Jack Keats books, right? Um, and I think that I still think that they maintain they're stunning. Um, but a critique of, of him at the time from other black artists and, and illustrators and authors was that like nowhere in those books does it talk about race. Right. Like nowhere yes. um, in those books is there an awareness that this child that you have drawn as black has a lived experience that is also influenced by his blackness. Right. Um, yep. And so while it's deeply important, again, those are the only books I had for a long time that had black kids in them um, as a kid. And, but it's still, it's, it's not enough. And we have to, like, when you're talking about what does it mean, I think we have to have a, a frank discussion about, like, what does white supremacy and 
um, racism look like in the kids' literature space, right? And it looks like Black people, brown people, Asian people, Latinx people not being able to tell their own stories. That's what it looks like. Um, yeah. And own voices as, a, as both a Twitter hashtag, but then also as, as like a driver of a movement, hopefully, in an industry, is about how can we recenter the need to have people from those groups. And, and, and I'm talking racially in, in particular, but I've talked to, we, we did the disability, like we've talked about disability mm-hmm. in, in work, and there's just a dearth of books written by people with disabilities about children with disabilities, right? Um, and there's a loss there. Like we lose out when we don't have those people directly speaking to their own experiences. I think not only disability, but also neurodiversity. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of books in those two particular categories. For me, that's where I'm um, seeing so much uh, of of the, I don't know if I want to go so far as to say appropriation, but there is certainly talk of, well, you know, I taught this class and I had this blind child, but there's just no picture books about blind children. So I decided I would write it myself. And while I think intentions are good and, and no one maybe on the surface thinks you're trying to profit off of that child's lived experience, you're absolutely losing something when when you are writing that outside of an experience that you have. There are ways to, I don't want to say compensate for, but there are ways to do the work that I think are important to note. And we're going to get into that as well um, in, in our book recommendations. But I think, for example, um, folks having an idea and being able to let it go and say, is this really my story to tell? Mm-hmm. And being able to let it go if you feel like the answer is no, knowing that you will be granted other stories. Your yes. creativity will grant you other stories. Yes. Or also the opportunity to give the story to a person that would be more representative of the experiences you're trying to communicate or uh, to co-write a book with that person. I think these are steps toward that can be very helpful. I think that um, we'll get to examples later. I think that's really going to help illustrate the point. The other um, resource I wanted to share, which I'm sure you've seen, um, is the um, the the resource that um, Sarah Park Dolan has created um, each year with David Hike, the Diversity in Children's Books. Mm-hmm. It came out in 2018, the most recent one, but it's an infographic showing children standing in front of mirrors. Um, and as of 2018, taking information from CCBC, the Cooperative Children's Book Center at the School of Education in the University of Wisconsin-Madison, which is a place that records and analyzes all children's books. Wonderful resource. They release um, information every single year. This infographic looks like it's being made every other year because uh, it was it was just recently updated. Um, but uh, it has, for example, uh, a, the child at the end, the white child, uh, 50% of the time in those children's books uh, is seeing themselves reflected in the character's Uh, the storylines, the backgrounds in these stories. And the next greatest representation is animals. (laughs) Wait, can we pause? My favorite. This is my favorite one. No, my favorite doing this. I get to bring you back into my classroom, Nicole. This is my favorite. When I was doing this work with my uh, fourth graders in particular, leading into the diversity audit that we uh, were doing of our library, one of my students rightly called out, wait, so... Animals make up more than American Indian slash First Nations, Latinx, Asian Pacific slash Islander, Asian Pacific American, and African American, um, all combined. 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 Mm-hmm. Um, we have greater representation of animals. And we can go round and round on the argument for why we use animals in children's books. It It does allow... The character to be anyone, but it also ends up like allowing for stereotypes in animals to happen is yeah. definitely a thing. And in yeah. tr- stereotypes in trucks, in stereotypes in buildings, yeah. stereotypes in all things that you wouldn't believe that as soon as you anthropomorphize them, they start taking on qualities of real humans. And it that can be that can and sometimes is very problematic. But to have um, to have identity <laughs> being talked about children need to see themselves and they are not bears. Yes. 
I think it's interesting. I, the the animal one, I love that this is included in the graphic. It makes me laugh when I see it. Because <laughs> this it has, makes me laugh, you said? It does. It makes me laugh because it's like, it's so true. that, And I'm so glad they included it. One, so that children like the one who highlighted that this is like they have more representation than all of these other groups combined can see this illustrated. But I do think there's been a conversation for a very long time about the erasure of identities when you fold them into animal identities, right? Like there has has just been a conversation about this for forever. And that's with almost everything pertaining to kids' entertainment, right? Like it's not just literature. It's also the movies. It's also like whatever. When you don't, when you choose not to like put in a human being into that spot, right? And and there's a choice that you're making there. Um, And I think it's interesting. You and I have done a couple of episodes about LGBTQ representation and pride. And so many of those books, especially in children's literature, are animals, right? Like they um, are so often so animals. Many are animals, and like that is a race. So glad you brought that up. That's yes, a it absolutely is. What do? Because kids are asking. So this is outside of your experience, because you at this age, maybe I think the predominant experience in in school age children is that they live in a household where um, the adults in the adults that raise them are heterosexual. Mm-hmm. Um, I I don't believe statistically that I'm making a leap there. I don't think you are. But then then to say, so I know you don't know about queer individuals. They mostly look like rabbits and whatevers <laughs> and what else? Like come bears. On. What are you doing? <laughs> Actual in between characters that are like both a bunny and a bear. You know, like just things like oh, that. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think they're good. They help bring us to a certain point in the conversation. But then but they, that's where we stop. Yes, they leave us there. <laughs> yeah. It's the, it's the wait, I, I want to give you this book, and I love, and the book you just mentioned, you know I love that book. I love that book. Um, but if we are going to stop at that book, if we're going to stop at Bunny Bear, if we're going to stop at whatever, then 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 that's where we have a, an issue. Um, and I think that, that some books do it just the right way using um using certain characters told a certain way but if we are if we are excluding identity to that degree uh of erasure then yeah man we are gonna goodness we are getting into it and there's so much more i want to talk about so i want to ask you um if you were with a group of um let's specifically look at teachers because um for the folks that listen to this, um, teachers and parents in particular, let's do anybody that has a bookshelf at home mm-hmm. and it's a bookshelf for children. So anybody that has a bookshelf for children, <laughs> there, that seems to be most of our listeners. Yep. Good. I yep. see the listeners raising their hands. We're good. <laughs> Everyone's got one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, people with bookshelves for children in their space, um, what to you are are, um, are ways of approaching um evaluating that shelf for own voices mm. for making that space we're certainly not saying throw out every book you own no, absolutely not. um but we do want to as a library and the word we would continue to use is we want to continue to curate mm-hmm. we want to continue to um take out those things that aren't serving the way that they could and replace with things that are serving better so nicole for you what does that look like I think for me, so of course, the first thing I go to, I want every, especially white children in my life, but every child in my life to have books that feature characters of color. And then I just have to go to the back of the book or look at the author's page and just see if that person is also a person of color who is doing this, right? And so I want every child in my life to have books that, picture books in particular, that feature black children. And then I want to flip it to the back and see if that author is a black person. I want them to have books that feature Latinx children in multiple experiences. Right. And so I'm going to flip to the back and see, um, and you know, I want there to be more representation for LGBTQ kids. And I, for right now, I will take the animal books, but I would love to see more and more that are, are written by queer people about queer children. Um, so that's for me. I, I feel like you and I did a little thing at the beginning because I was confused about the illustrator for one of our books. And we just kind oh, of yeah. did a Google search, right? <laughs> like we were like that's doing a right. little Google hunt. And we also looked at the back of the book. You had the book copy. And so you looked in the back. And so I think it's just taking that one more minute 
to um, when you're at these independent bookstores, when you're at the Barnes and Nobles, when you're at the library, just to look in the back and see who are the writers and the illustrators. And you know what also happens when you take that extra minute? And I mean this uh, earnestly, when you take time to take a name that is printed on a book and type it into a device and then look for that person's photo or more importantly, their bio. Um, uh, because I, I'm thinking of, of people that, that whose race might not read. Gosh, how do I say that, Nicole? Oh, white I don't want to just assume white a white presenting person. Thank mm-hmm. you. Um, I, I don't want in any way to, to, to feel like I'm forcing authors to out their, their identity, how, you know, how they identify what, um, if their family comes from a different country, if they come from a different background, if they are uh, queer or not, I don't want to put people in a position to out that if that's not something you're comfortable sharing. But at the same time, I would say, if you feel like it's in the service of your readers and in the service of your book, I think that being able to share those aspects of your life or your upbringing or of your background or your family allow a place for children to also connect. Mm-hmm. I think that's important. But no, anyway, but I was just going to say taking that time to look it up also means that you're going to more likely remember that person's name. Yes. Because you're making that meaningful connection. I, um, it, it gets, mm, it gets hard in, if I was recommending, from a reader's list. I could say, if you look at the Credit Scott King Award, a criteria of the CSK is that you, the the author and or illustrator must identify as African-American. Therefore, I know if I'm pulling a book from there, that that is how that individual identifies. If we look at another, oh, the Pora Belpre, same thing. Mm-hmm. But if I look at, for example, the Stonewall Award, that's not a criteria. And I don't know if I feel like it needs to be or not. That becomes very gray to me. As a queer identifying man, would I like to know if this story is coming from an own voice or not? I got to say, yes, I do, because I was not a person that ever had the privilege of seeing queer identity in children's books, Mm -hmm. in media, in anything. I mean, I think about like how probably many folks, their first experience uh, many queer folks my age, one of their first experiences seeing um, seeing queerness depicted was like through Will and Grace and all those problems. Yeah. Things like that is what's coming to my mind. So with in regards to like that Stonewall Award, I'm not uh, in any way trying to put folks in a position of having to out yourself. That's that's very personal and that's I wouldn't be okay with that. But at the same time, the way that that serves a reader to understand that I've grappled with my identity in this way or with my intersectionality with other folks or with my own identity in this way. And that is what informed my story, I think is an interesting thing to say. Yeah, I think it's important. I think it's critical. And we're going to mention one of her books later on. But I think Meg Medina is a person who is a white presenting Latinx woman. Right. But she has centered her Latina identity in her writing. Right. Like it's a critical part of the kinds of books she produces and for children and for middle grades children. And I just, I appreciate that. Right. And it's, she's telling particular stories. Um, and you don't, to your point, you don't have to, if you don't want to identify in that way, but then I would like to find authors who do identify that way. Right. Because it's important yep. for me to make sure that my, my nieces and nephews at this point and my future children are reading books that are written by people who identify with their lived experiences, the ones that I know, and then maybe later on, the ones that they discover about their identity, right? Like, um, and so, you know, there are things that are obvious right away, right? Like you want, I want ones that feature black children, right? But I also then want more, uh, just a range of stories so that if later on my child is like, oh, I'm also queer, I want them to be able to find books that speak to that. Um, and also help them identify that about themselves. And help them, yeah. yeah. Help them be able to say this this might be me, this might be my experience, mm-hmm. or this person is like me. I think about, we bring her up all the time on the show, but I think about Leslie Newman, who mm-hmm. both is very um, forward and centering of her Jewish identity and of her queer identity in her books, um, sometimes overlapping and sometimes um, with separate focuses, depending on how it serves the story. Um, we, uh, I think, should 
not only go to our next sponsor, but get ourselves into this book talking segment because it's it's so I can feel us sort of just chomping at the bit. I can feel the anticipation to talk more about mm-hmm. books. So, Nicole, would you mind sharing our next sponsor? This episode is sponsored by Book Riot Insiders, the digital hangout spot for the Book Riot community. Enrich your reading life with our Book Riot Insider perks. We've got three levels of insiders, short story, novel, and brand new epic level. And you can try any level out for free for two weeks. The highlight is our new group read hosted online available to all epic members. Each quarter we'll read a book voted on by epic subscribers that will fulfill at least one task of the 2020 read harder challenge and cap it off with a live chat. Insiders also get access to our new releases index so that they can keep track of upcoming releases they're most excited about, including exclusive podcasts, bookish merch deals, and more. Head to insiders.bookriot.com to start your free two-week trial. It's time to talk about books. So listen, listeners, if this is your favorite segment, we are so glad to be pouring on books for you, giving you new stuff to read. But we also love hearing what you're reading, what you would add to the list. Uh, Make sure if you're on social media, you're using hashtag KidLit these days. We will put every book we mentioned in our show notes at bookriot.com slash listen. You find episode number 34 of KidLit these days. And all of these books will be here. You can also email us at kidlitthesedays at bookriot.com. Nicole, let's get talking about books. Okay, so this book, you have a copy of it, but I haven't gotten a chance to see it yet. It comes out in September. It's called Evelyn Del Rey is Moving Away, and it's by Meg Medina, who's a Cuban-American author, and it's illustrated by Sonia Sanchez, who is not the poet so it's Sonia Sanchez like I thought, but also an incredible illustrator. Um, and I haven't read this book yet, but it's it just seems so beautiful. It's and you have it, but it's um, it's about friendship, love. It's about these two girls. It's Evelyn and her best friend Daniela, and Evelyn is moving away. And there's just not enough books that are talking about just friend love, in particular between two little brown girls. And um, I've seen the illustrations for it. I've heard Meg Medina talking about this book, and um, and in fact, I think she previewed it at the Everywhere Book Fest. And I'm so excited that it's coming out. I'm going to read to you an excerpt, okay? Okay. I can't resist because it's Meg Medina's language on the page. It's so beautiful. It reads, this is two girls moving away from each other. Um, It reads, but I know that tomorrow everything will be different. Evelyn will be in a new home that doesn't match mine. Before we leave, I spot something in the corner left behind in the dust. It's the last of Evelyn's sparkly stickers. We go downstairs, and I press a heart on her cheek to seal our promise. Then she does mine just the same. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave it there for you. Oh, I'm sure the images are going to your head. It's so beautiful. <laughs> I, um, yeah, I've been... I've I've been aware of this book since when was the last ALA January oh. um in in Philly when I went up to Philly uh and oh my goodness so folks you got to wait till September which isn't that far away but um Nicole and I as she was saying we're talking before recording about loving a book about friend love mm-hmm. that pureness of being a child and loving your best friend and that might mean that you do feel attraction for the same gender child or that might mean that you love your friend so much that it is the purest thing in the world at this age it doesn't matter because that love is pure and real and when authors can do that well and put it on the page that's a very very special thing. And, and, and it's Meg Medina. So I think it goes without saying that <laughs> she nails it. Well done, Meg. <laughs> I'm like laughing at what am I trying to say about Meg Medina? Yeah, she did just fine. Just fine. <laughs> okay. I, um, I have, I have a lot of books to talk to you about and I wanted to bring up just a little, a little note about own voices, Nicole, before I get into some other stuff, which is that the place to find solid own voices in children's literature is kids' comics. Mm. 
There are so many queer cartoonists making queer-centered stories in natural and beautiful ways, stories that don't just sit and center on like a coming out story or something, but just show those individuals being themselves and going on dungeon adventures and witchcraft things and all sorts of like weird, (laughs) amazing, amazing things that work so perfectly in comics and just are they just are in their queerness and those are always my favorite the one in particular i'm thinking about there's a book called snapdragon by cat lay that uh is a graphic novel that's perfect for i don't know maybe like grades three and up four and up it's really really wonderful about a a, a, an old witch that lives (laughs) like out in sort of a desolated swampish area or rather she's rumored to be a witch but when our main character snapdragon comes upon her place um she she gets there because uh she believes the witch has stolen her dog and we find out that this woman who who is (laughs) who 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 snapdragon claims to be a witch snap claims that that's a witch um not only is a person who who finds and rescues injured animals but has this beautiful intertwined past with ah with snap's family in a way that i will not give away but that twist runs the course of the book and is gorgeous snapdragon uh by cat lay um it does display and i and, and center queer identity in beautiful beautiful ways um so that's 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 a good one to start with how about that i love that um i want to highlight prairie lotus it's by linda sue park and it's brand new it just came out this year um and it's about it's you and i talked about this beforehand also y'all this really is a show before a show but we <laughs> were talking about this <laughs> book because um you don't often know when you are not a white kid that you're reading as a kid you're reading these books that are not really for you or about you right and so linda sue park the the author of this book you know is an asian american woman and she was reading little you know little house on the prairie and loved the books but wasn't even recognizing in real time as a child that this was um this is a story that didn't represent her right and so as an adult she is writing herself into this kind of this prairie time right um there's an asian american protagonist hannah um, who lives in a small town in America's heartland in 1880. Um, and I just love that. I love it. First of yeah, all. As the train tracks are being built. The train tracks are being built, and there was a huge influx of Chinese like immigrants to the West to build train tracks, right? Yeah. Um, which we, it's a erasure that we never, like, we never talk about that. Um, and I just love that she just wrote um, Asian Americans into their stories because they were there, and there should be, um, some stories about that. And we, I mean, I used to love Little House on the Prairie. We had to read it in school, but then I also just was really into the like Oregon Trail was happening when I was a kid. So I was yeah, very yeah. into these ideas of like Westward Ho. And so I can't imagine if I had read a book at, at that age around like a, a protagonist who wasn't white having this experience, what, what that would have done for me. So I'm excited that that book exists and I can't wait to read it. You've already read it or you started it, Matthew? No, I started it on audio. Yep. Okay. On through my Libro account, I've started it. <laughs> <laughs> um no, I and and it's fantastic. I love Linda Sue Park. I love um I, I love her writing style. She's similar to Meg Medina. Uh she also is a Newbery winning author. She knows how to craft a story and Linda Sue Park knows how to focus in on characters. She beautifully balances the setting and the character and each play a role in influencing one another. It's, it's a beautiful, uh, beautiful thing she does in her writing. And, uh, Prairie Lotus is, is a sweeping novel so far. It's, it's, it's outstanding. I, um, I, yeah, I, I, I think about how many of us read books growing up that, that, we didn't realize may have had problematic representation, but that it's our, our, our calling to confront that and to reconcile with that. Uh, I think about representation, uh, as you were saying of disability earlier, I think about another one of my favorite graphic novels, and I actually won a Newbery honor called El Defo by C.C. Bell, mm-hmm. uh, who um, is a deaf and hard of hearing individual. And in this um autobiography this graphic memoir she writes about losing her hearing at a very young age 
and the uh, at times very funny um, experiences of having uh, a hearing aid that <laughs> that allowed her the superpower of, for example, listening into the uh, teacher's faculty lounge because the teacher would wear the the transit <laughs> the transmitter and just wouldn't turn it off, or into like God forbid the like teacher's bathroom and things like that. Um, but that it also, in a lot of ways separated cc from a lot of things and and there's a a a friend in the story that you can see uh, her friend over trying to help um and 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 how how hearing individuals can get in the way uh sometimes or or cannot sometimes we don't stop to ask what do you need how can i help right so uh this this graphic novel ends up being such a beautiful vessel to tell this story because we can literally see Cece lose her hearing in this book because we're seeing panels where the things that people are saying are starting to disappear, to fade Ooh. out as she loses her hearing. And also, I don't know why I didn't mention this up front, Cece draws herself and other characters in the book as rabbits. So our attention is fully on the ears. <laughs> and so it's it's just... That wonderful to have that 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 call constantly to to where our attention should be so yay i'm all about comics today this is, we're gonna get a lot of comics on this talk today what yes, would you like to I, share next Nicole? i wanted to share it's <laughs> also similar this conversation around uh own voices disability kids lit um so show me a sign is by Anne claret lazat and i have not read this book but i am highlighting oh, the it. cover though oh, oh the cover the cover is stunning i, know this book. I can't but wait to read it I, it's also i think so I have a friend who is a disabilities advocate, uh, Rebecca Coakley Hager, um, and she is a person who's always pushing me on making sure that um, I'm, when I'm talking to teachers, when I'm talking to parents, that I am centering disability voices just as much as any other voice. Um, and part of the reason why she's like, she's always talking about the fact that in Kids Lit, there are no books, there aren't many books rather, that talk about kids with disabilities who just are from communities with disabilities, right? Like are from places where, you know, it's kind of normal for them to have a disability. And so I love this book for that reason or the description of it. I can't wait to read it actually. So Mary is from Martha's Vineyard and actually historically in Martha's Vineyard, there was a large deaf population there. So, right, she's always felt included because she was around people who were also deaf. Um, and that has been several people's experiences, right? Like they've grown up in deaf community or they've grown up in little people community or they've grown up in this way. And so I'm excited about a a, a book. This is a graphic novel as well, um, I believe, that is, um, yeah, that's centering that. And so there's some change. There's a guy that comes to town, a young scientist comes to town and Mary ends up being a part of this experiment that's really cruel. Um, but I, I love that the premise at the beginning is this idea that she's from a community of deaf people. Um, and that is a lived experience that a lot of people with disabilities have. So, the next book I want to share, I think I'm gonna I'm gonna mention Rick by Alex Gino. I think that's a good one to go to next. Um, Alex Gino is a transgender author, uh, probably best known for George, uh, a story about a child who wants to play the lead in. Uh, the 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 classroom or the school the grade levels performance of Charlotte's Web. George wants to play the lead. Uh, wants to play Charlotte. And um, if you haven't read that beautiful book, please do. But one of the other characters in that story, and one of the classmates of of Melissa, as um, we come to know um, George after she transitions, is this character named Rick. And in this sequel uh that centers on rick's story and rick is best friends with with a bully character from george rick is exploring his identity because he he does not feel attracted to anybody and he asks himself if that's okay mm-hmm. um in a in a in an environment where it seems that a, uh, his family is really pushing him to talk about what girls he thinks are cute or whatever, or his, his mom, to her credit, actually does continue to remind him that it's okay if you like boys or girls. But in this story, we explore a third option um, of many different options, which is what if you just aren't attracted to either? Mm. Um, so to have a story that that explores uh, queer and questioning, that um, that in, that... It holds a light up to asexuality was was beautifully beautifully done 
And the if you get to reading this, which again is a fantastic audiobook, read by Alex Gino, I will point out, um, read by the author, this uh, Rick's grandfather in this book is mm-hmm. everything. And they bond over a nerdy sci-fi show and there's Comic-Cons and it's yes. it's amazing. <laughs> it's like, oh, it's the greatest thing. I just want to like call Alex up right now and be like, this remember that remember when you wrote that thing and how cool it was? And whatever. Like that's that's how I want to be with Alex Gino over this book. Yes. It was just it, it it felt like, wow, this is a book I wish I I had. This is a book I wish I read when I was a child. But how grateful I am to be able to read it now and to reflect and to look at my childhood through a different lens and to think about the the lives that my students are living and my son is living. Uh, that's a wonderful book called Rick by Alex Gino. I love that. What else you got, Matthew? Ooh, 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 what else? Um why don't we talk about the refugee experience? Mm-hmm. One of my favorite graphic novels of the year so far is called When Stars Are Scattered. It's uh, the the true refugee experience of Omar Mohammed. And it's also co-written and, and the cartoonist of the book is Victoria Jameson, who won a Newbery Honor for Roller Girl, her graphic novel. Um, and why I wanted to bring that up, as I sort of did in the top of the podcast, is that this is a story, this is Omar's story, that Victoria helped to tell. Mm -hmm. Uh, Almost in some ways, she was Omar's biographer to a degree, but also um, uh, certainly uh, the one who was drawing all the pictures of this life. So Omar, there was a lot of back and forth with Omar to make sure, is is this the right representation? Is this fair? Is this what the refugee camp in Kenya looked like? Omar is a uh, Somali refugee, um, in a refugee camp in Kenya. Omar uh, has since uh, come to the United States and runs a really amazing um, nonprofit called Refugee Strong. Um, but in this book, it's a story not only of his refugee experience and his education in this camp, but also of his care for his brother, Hassan. Um, and it's it's wonderful and exceptional. But to me, it is an outstanding example of how two individuals can partner to tell this story. Victoria comes from a background of telling things through panels, of using that visual uh, storytelling through comics. Omar has a lived experience, and this is the format through which he wants to tell it. Um, And they both, I think it becomes very clear in reading the book, that they both really uh, found their dance with one another to make this story what it is. in a way that that you just you you see Omar's truth down on the page, uh, and it's and it's done in a beautiful way because you would imagine that spending every day in a refugee camp would get quite mundane and the same, but how do you translate that through through a visual storytelling element like comics? And Victoria does an outstanding job. So uh, that's when stars are scattered by Victoria Jameson and Omar Muhammad. And I'm going to say it again. This also, which is very rare, but this also has an audiobook for it. And I think I I bring it up, Nicole, because I think I I think I've mentioned the audiobook before. And what's really interesting about this audiobook being that it's a comic audiobook is that it's almost like a um, what would you call it? Like a radio show performance. There's sound effects in the story. Oh, I love that. So there are wordless panels in the book. But the way they communicate that is through, they have an ensemble cast and they also have sound effects. And it's wonderful. That is beautiful. How rich. I love that. Um, I also just, we were talking earlier about white authors being like, well, where do I go if I don't have, if I can't write about white characters? And I think you, you talked about collaboration for own voices, but I also think it's about using your privilege. Like we're having these conversations right now around what does it mean to be privileged in a society that is structured this way and how do you use your privilege, right? And I think this um, is a great example in Victoria's case of using your privilege to elevate someone else's story, right? And doing it in collaboration with them so that it is true to their lived experience. Um, yeah. So yeah. Do you know the picture book, The Catman of Aleppo? You have told me about that book that's, before. Oh, so that's the other one that I would point out. That's Irene Latham uh, co-wrote the, that story with Kareem Shamsi Basha. They, um, and they wrote it about a man um, who, after uh, the bombing in the, through the Syria 
uh, civil war, um, after the, 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 the bombing of this town of Aleppo, um, a man who was a, a first responder, an ambulance driver, um, stayed behind to save these cats and ended up opening uh, a home for these cats and ultimately um, created uh, an infrastructure to help orphan children and other animals that were left behind. And, and just this, this is an exceptional story. The, the, the man, his name is Muhammad Allah Al-Jalil. And uh, this is a true story, and he writes a foreword to this story, but it's one that Irene and Karim paired together to tell the story, and it's it's beautifully, beautifully done, but one, again, that, that Irene was using her privilege to help center another voice and a different person's story. It's okay for us to be observers of the world and to want to help bring other stories to light. That is okay but making sure that we find the right vehicle through which to do that is really important and finding ways to lift others up as we do that is is equally important and that book is just it's exceptional in the way that it does it whenever i find books that feel like examples for how to do it i i always want to share uh we're near the end of our time why don't i run quickly through the other ones that i listed mm-hmm. that be okay yes uh Exceptional books. I mean, these are hopefully ones that are on a lot of people's radar, but Alma and How She Got Her Name by Juana Martinez Neal. Uh, she won the Pora Belpre Award, Illustrator Award for this, about a girl who has a long name, and each part of her name, as it turns out, comes from a different member of her family. And so she finds strength in this long, beautiful name, in how it's derived from her dad or her grandfather or her great-grandfather, great-grandmother, who uh, worked in a factory or led protests or did this or did that or was this kind person or always believed in this thing. It is a beautiful affirmation of how we are covered in the fingerprints of our family. Yes. Uh, and it's just, it's just so wonderfully done. And I, I'm a big fan of Juana's. Uh, the other folk, another person I'm a wonderful fan of, and she knows it, is Dreamers by Juji Morales. I talk it's about Juji's work all the time. It's a gorgeous book. That's why. It is. And <laughs> Juji changes her style with every picture book that she makes. So I'm, I'm such a fan. And in this case, I don't know if you were aware that, well, maybe you were because you probably uh, flipped to the back and read all that extra bonus information. But the the collage work in Dreamers actually incorporates real artifacts and textiles from when Juji came to America with her son, when she emigrated to the country. That, that Those whatever you would call them, like primary artifacts are in the art. It's to make that it's literally part of the story and it's 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 beautiful. beautiful I also one. just think collage is so it's just so layered in this book and I um I love it. And I love that that I I, I did not read the end end piece around mm, the artifacts. And I think that um I just I love the images in this book. So she names the pages where you can find the items and and what they were to her. It's oh. amazing. Maybe maybe the greatest back matter note on a picture book I've ever seen in that way. Mm-hmm. Just what a glimpse inside the art. Uh, another book that uh, is exceptional uh, and is is a forever book for me. A book that I I think will will I will champion as long as I have you know words on my breath. And it's called When We Were Alone. It's by David A. Robertson. It's illustrated by Julie Flett. This is an, this is an indigenous story about residential schools and it's a girl talking to her grandmother about why grandmother do you wear such bright colors why do you cut your hair short and everything jumps back to the grandmother telling a story of when i was at this school we were made to dress this way or we were made to wear our hair this way or we couldn't use our our native language or whatever and so now i do those things it's i'm getting chills talking about it right now um it's it's exceptional every person needs to read and experience this book and the exceptional artwork of julie flett uh yeah 
And the final book I'll leave with is one that also comes out in September, uh, and it's called The Hanukkah Magic of Nate Goodall by <laughs> Arthur A. Levine, famed publisher Arthur A. Levine, oh, also nice. author, illustrated by Kevin Hawkes. And um, this book is, this is going to, this is amazing. So I'm looking it up right now. I'm like, ooh, it's, ooh, ooh, it's what is it? an original holiday myth. Um, about, uh, about a, a, a Jewish figure, uh, a mythic figure named Nate Goodall, who has the power, um, to make anything last as long as it's needed. I really think about that, to make anything last as long as it's needed. So you need a tiny bit of oil to stretch through those eight nights. It's Nate like Goodall the Maccabees, right? It's like... <laughs> just a little bit. That's right, just a little bit. A small lump of coal or chocolate that grows to allow uh, the glazers to treat their children over the holiday. Just that little push. And uh, I will tell you that uh, St. Nick makes an, ex- makes an appearance in this book and gets just a little help from Nate Goodall. It's so wonderful. I love oh this. my goodness, so wonderful. So that's uh The Hanukkah Magic of Naked Doll by I Arthur A. Levine. Love that. Yeah, oh yeah. Oh yeah. Well, uh, that's an awful lot of books, and uh, we're so excited for you to dig in. Uh, thank you for joining us today. As always, we would love your feedback on this podcast. We always appreciate a rating on Apple Podcasts. And when you do that, as we said before, you can help others find this podcast too. You can find me, Matthew Winner, at Matthew Winner on Twitter. And you can find me, Nicole Young, on Twitter at IttyBittyNY. Thanks to D.R. Baker for sound editing on this episode. Thank you. If you you have a story idea, reach out to us on social media using hashtag KidLitTheseDays or email us at KidLitTheseDays at BookRiot.com. We would love to hear what you're thinking about and what you would like to hear on the show. May your coming days be storied and may the good stories keep on coming. (laughs) 